Fail Better Games are an indie game studio responsible for Sunless Sea, Sunless Skies and browser based game Fallen London. I had the privilege to sit down with Hannah Flynn, Olivia Wood and Leslie Ann White for all from Fail Better and we chatted about a lot of stuff. We chatted about building a community, keeping those fans interested and loyal, paying attention to feedback. Uh, we talked about Hannah, Olivia and Leslie's love of games, past and present, and all the stories that come with that of childhood fascination with gaming and how it persisted through to adulthood. We talk about the state of representation and diversity in games as it stands today, and generally have a good old chatter about the industry and about their personal histories. So that's enough from me, and get ready to enjoy another episode of Making Games is Fun. communications director at Fell Better, um, I came via a lot of other communications work, basically, um, because comm skills are quite transferable. Um, I initially worked um, in film, then for a publisher, um, one of the biggest in the world now, uh, and then for Tate Gallery, um, the biggest art gallery in the UK, and the NSPCC, the biggest children's charity in the UK. Oh. So um, after eight odd years of, of working in places where I continually had to email people who I'd never met to get things done. I sort of had a collapse and thought, I need to live in the same room where I work with everyone and I know all of their names. Yeah. So um, I was looking for, I was looking around generally and um, heard about the opportunity at Fell Better and got it, which has been wicked. And I've been here three and a half years now. It's now the longest job I've ever had. Mm which is pretty so cool. So it's quite an, an atypical journey in terms of like, you know, yeah. the um, it, games. It kind of, it all it. joins together, I think, in terms of my my personal mission and my meta game in my head is about, um, communications is about making spaces and filling them with messages, basically. Mm. And video games are a space that you fill with a message. Same for books, same for art galleries. And it's the, for me, it's not the thing, the actual product itself it is the, long game it is what right. are we saying with it as an as an organization as an industry what are we saying what are we making behavioral change and um people's um empathy and affecting people in the real world based on like discrete objects communications mm. objects which is kind of what i see a game as um or like the particular show that i would work on at tate what's that going to how's that going to change people's minds about x um, yeah I worked on some pretty dark stuff at NSPCC. I was um, I was one of the comms leads for sexual abuse, which is very um, different to what I'm doing now. But the um, for comms, it's always about the audience and then the message and then the execution. So I have a lot of practical comms skills. But what I'm really interested in is like, how do I get person A to point B, if you like, on some big graph? Um, how do I fill them up with thoughts and messages and feelings that change their mind about something? Yeah. Um, and for us at Fell Better, a lot of what we do is about um, good representation and um, diversity of thought and diversity of, 
of character um, and people's giving people the opportunity and the tools to express themselves. Mm. Um, so at the particular area of I work, which really motivates me, is the players who are LGBT, who are able to enact different facets of their identity through our games. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what keeps me particularly committed to our work. I've noticed that in your the character creation stage of your mm. stuff where it's very much you have that freedom of choice and that open openness and also making a point of of, of saying that as well yeah. is, is and is even having that as an option even if it is an option you would never take mm. the fact that every player sees that yeah yeah is a really interesting thing for me because yeah. games i think are really engines for empathy yeah. and even if you're the kind of player who would rail against social justice stuff being thrown in your face people don't don't look at it and see that that's what it is and mm. they they just they just keep going and playing the way they want to play but yeah. the fact that they had that option is a seed yes and i really enjoy knowing that we're kind of putting seeds out there yeah yeah and the way of, of doing that yeah that's yeah interesting the original question oh how did i get here um <laughs> Another quite indirect route. Um, yeah. I was actually in video games when I was 18. I worked for IDOS as a QA tester. Um, my boyfriend then got me the job because um, I was playing games all the time mm. and I needed a summer job because I took a gap year. Um, I have a slightly posh accent, so um, it, it all fits into my very stereotypical uh, history <laughs> there. But one thing that wasn't was you never get told at school that you can do video games as a career. Um, it's just not an option you're told you can do anything so it's, it's quite a feminist school I went to in that you could be anything okay. you can be a doctor a lawyer you can be prime minister but they never mentioned video games like no. it, most of them would never even heard of it um, and so I'm just like okay I'll do a degree because that's that's what you do and so I did um, but again I went for a very generalist subject so I'm like I, I don't really know what I want to do with my life mm. I know I want to do something that's telling stories I want to do something that matters to people I, I'm not sure that I want to be a writer. They don't earn any money. He, um, I want to have something that I can actually afford living. And so then I went into law because I still didn't know what I wanted to do. But law told me what I didn't want to do. Um, because the areas that I was interested in, um, things like family law and criminal law, A, very badly paid, but B, are really, really harrowing to work in every single day. Like, I think 90% of my friends who qualified as barristers and started practicing went, we can't do this. It's, it's too hard, it's too miserable, and have now started different jobs. So I kind of stopped the law there and went, I don't know what I want to do. I know it's not this. I'm going to try different things. So I did a bit, bit of temping. I ended up doing editing at a, a medical um, journal. And I was very good at editing and hated editing medical journals. I mean, it wasn't a great journal, so I was doing kind of not particularly good medical research that I could see was not great but I had to publish because I had to fill the pages and one day I just quit because I hated it um, but at this point I was on Twitter and I was like tweeting all these authors I loved um, one of them Nick Harkaway uh, the back of his book had a little kind of biog saying he does this thing he used to do jiu-jitsu and I was like hang on that's the style of jiu-jitsu I practice and I tweeted him going so you who wrote this book that I'm absolutely in love with did you do this style? And we started chatting. And from there, I was like, I can talk to anyone on Twitter. And I started shouting at publishers. And I went, you, you should hire me. Kind of joking. And one went, all right. <laughs> and they gave me a freelance piece. And it went well. And then they gave me more. And I was suddenly a freelance editor working in sci-fi and fantasy, which is what I really love. Um, but again, publishing pays badly. And also, it's very you're isolated if you're a freelance editor. You're in your little room. 
you can be sitting there for two weeks straight and you sometimes trot out if you want to deliver the, the work to someone else. But um, it, it was a day when I actually kind of tweeted going, can anyone see me? Am I alive? Joking, but also yeah. I haven't talked to a human being for the last four days. I need someone to interact with me now, please. Mm. Um, and so I was very much looking for how can I use these skills in something I enjoy that also gives me human contact? Yeah. Because um, while I'm an introvert, I don't actually want to live in a room with forever. <laughs> Um, and I, all this time, from the start of playing, of doing the medical journal, I was playing Fall in London. And it was, it was well written, but I was going, you need an editor. Like, this is good, but it could be better. <coughs> and like, when I first actually joined the company, I looked through some of the support tickets and went, oh my God, I was so annoying. I was like, you need an editor. <laughs> You're really good. You need an editor. Have you thought about hiring an editor? And finally, when they're doing Sun the Sea and they're getting freelancers on board, it's like, you need an editor. By the way, I work with freelancers. And they're like, oh. Fine, we'll give you two days' work. Let's see what you do. <laughs> like, the end of first day, I had pages and pages of notes. It was something like 29 pages of notes. And they went, we need an editor. <laughs> and like, that's, that's how I got on board. So it was very much pestering something that I, I loved with a skill set I already had. Um, yeah. And then proving it straight away by being mental with my, my edits. But, um, and then from there, I've transitioned to do editing and writing and some content management just because it's useful to the company and... Writing is great, it's really hard, but you get a lot more creative kind of ownership. This yeah. is my thing. Whereas editing, I always feel very bad when I try and take any credit for someone else's work because mm. I feel I've just made it what they wanted it to be. It's yeah. not my thing. Um, and so then people edit me and I want to cry because being edited is horrible. <laughs> I don't know why anyone likes it. Um, but yeah, so that was my path. Yeah, but editing's so important, it really is. It's so yeah. essential and you know, things I've written things and someone's just gone through it and just given it a tweak. And you have to, you can't go, I yeah, don't but, understand. but I meant to do that. Or I you just go, oh yeah. And then you think, actually, yeah, that is now what I meant it to say. Like the good editor. Yeah, like, I mean, it's the thing is, editors aren't trying to change what you're saying. They're trying to make what you're saying clearer or yeah. question what you're saying yeah. to make sure that's what you wanted to say. Yeah. And coming from publishing, I was like, how do you send all these writers out without an editor? That's really yeah. mean. Like, yeah. you're mean to them in-house, so then they can be really proud out, mm. rather than just, oh, you're fine. And then people see their work and went, uh -huh, are you sure? Mm. So, I mean, I, I don't know. The editor does the mean stuff so the public doesn't, is how I see it. And writing, writing in games is still, it needs a lot of work, you know, in, in the overall sphere of things. So... So you had sort of a previous interest in games in general. I've, I've always been playing games. Yeah. I mean, that's how I'd ended up QAing for a while. Yeah. But I was just like, well, this can't. Be, this is just a summer job. Because <sighs> of course it can't be. Of course you can't be. Yeah, yeah. Which but. is I hear that a lot now. With people our age-ish, you know, in, in that range, who when they were at school, there was no, there's no even suggestion that that could be a job in any in any discipline of games. It was just like no, that they just happen magically or something it's like well, what, what where are these games coming from now like people mm. who make them as a job right but there was just no yeah. basis for it there's no curriculum for it there was no yeah or just nothing nothing for it you just sort of thought well we play them and that's it and then you could never make them yourself it's a very odd situation really but um but with your with your position there like you you know the power of good editing and, and why writing is really important. So when you come into a place like this, that you add that quality that's really needed that a lot of games still, even at the top level, you look at some games and you think, well, that's well written for a game. Yeah. There's not like, it's almost like, and because people love games, the, I think a lot of people give things 
more leeway than they would just because they're so grateful that there's been some effort put into mm. the writing and they're just happy to see something that's not as bad as some of the other things, you know, and there's just this kind of like, look, okay, okay, so this is the well-written game. You know, they're just so keen and eager to see something that's slightly better than, you know, than I the mean, norm. I think part of the problem is, is unless someone's actually come across from publishing, hmm. they've never been edited, so they don't understand what the value is. A lot of people who've never been edited go, so you just proofread. I'm like, I can fix your typos and I, I can put the comma in the right place yeah. but that is literally the least important part of my job yeah um and and it's very much editing is me asking a series of questions to the writer hmm. while trying to be as obtuse as possible so I'm quite frustrating I'm like do you mean this and it's a really odd read but it's something that someone might get and they're like oh no I didn't but now I see how you get there you horrible person but it's <sighs> if you haven't been edited you don't know the value. And so a lot yeah. of people who have come up through games and kind of slid from, say, design into writing or like programming into writing, they can be very, very good writers. But if they've never been edited, they're like, well, what does this, what's added mm. on something that's already got a huge time pressure or a very mm. tight budget or something? And it's, it's difficult to justify if they've never seen it, um, which I think is one of the things I, I tr talk about editing quite a lot because I try to explain what it does. And then people get edited and they go, oh, shit, it's great. But... Um, yeah. It's one of those things, like, if you've never tried it, yeah. you might as well put the value at zero because you don't understand. Now, Hi. the journey, the final journey of the three. The final journey. Actually, <laughs> I've, this has been really interesting for me, learning about you two. And uh, part of my journey is, like, really similar. Um, always into games, since yep. I was knee-high to a grasshopper. And I was really, for my age, really good at art. And it was always like, I didn't even know what concept art was, but I was like, I want to do all this artwork that, that is in games. Yeah. And even, again, not knowing what it was, touching on level design. Um, but my school was exactly the same. There was just nothing. You know, it wasn't a thing. And while I knew somebody made video games, I just didn't think it was a possibility. And I came from a really poor family, and my mother was very practical. And especially when I was like going down the art side of things, she was like, well, "What you? How are you going to make money from that? You need to get a real job, you know, when you leave school." Um, so it's very much discouraged and very much discouraged at uh, at school too. Of course, all the teachers were like, "Games? What? What is this?" Yeah. Um, and I also left my art behind at like uh, at GCSE level because of like a really bad you know, like mental abuse from art teachers. And I was like, whoa, that, that's it. And I, at the same time, went down a science route. So it was completely, I'd sort of like forgotten about, you know, games. It was just a thing that I did in my spare time. And I have done many other things. So I, I went into retail management. I did that for about six years. I trained as a martial arts instructor. I was a teaching assistant in a school, primary school. What else did I do? Oh my God, I trained as a, um, an animal behaviorist. And trainer, and I did that for okay. a long, long time. What's that? In, what's involved in that? Mo then? That was mostly working with dogs, but sometimes working with horses, cats, other animals um, with behavioural issues. So, right. given mostly working with dogs, it would animals. Uh, sorry, dogs with um, fear of other dogs, fear of uh, like no noise phobias, that kind of yeah. stuff. So, working with the animal itself and with their owner to um, address those kind of behavioural issues, and um, it's one of the most rewarding things I've done. And at the same time, one of the most frustrating things because of things, well, firstly, you can see a lot of neglect, mm. um, often really unintentional 
neglect, people don't realize they're being, you know, neglectful or cruel to their animal. And mm. that's really, it's really hard to get people to see things from a different perspective. And two, because of shows like Caesar Milan's, whatever it's called, um, people have this impression that um, you're going to turn up and in half an hour you're going to fix their dog <sighs> of this problem that they've had for like nine years. Yeah. Um, and that is not the reality. It does, you know, that's all edited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it can take months and years to sort an animal out. And even then, sometimes, you know, you're just working around those kind of issues. Mm. Um, and it's the owner that has to put the effort in. You can, you essentially train the owner, you know, various techniques. Yeah. And it, it's them that day in, day out has to put that effort in. And, and I sort of burnt out yeah. uh, doing that. Um, it's not really a nine-to-five job. There's no money in it. Um, you sort of do it for the love, and I, I did. I burnt out, and I was like, do you know what? I just need a job. Yeah. I just need a job. I can't. I can't work in a supermarket. I've I've sort of done that. I, I you know I'll get bored. Um, and my husband worked for Jagex as a programmer at the time. A uh, big company. They've got a customer service department, and I was like, right, okay. There's a job come up in the customer service um, department, and because I've got all this you know, retail management experience, I'll go for that. And that will be a, okay, shift work, but that will be like a nine to five, I'll cut off, I'll come home, everything will be fine. Uh, <laughs> 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 Famous last words. Yeah, so um, I've been there for about three months and that's when I realized like, no, I'm I'm not a job person, I'm a career person. Yeah. Um, and it, it just, it, that was the point. Even though my husband was already working in the industry, it still didn't occur to me, well, this is something I could do. Yeah. Until I actually got Jagex, and I was like, oh my God, I'm here in the games industry, and this is it, and, yeah. and this is amazing, and it exists. Um, let's go for it. And I didn't actually fully enjoy the customer service department stuff. Um, it was fun, but it had its moments. Uh, and then a job came up in QA. I'm like, right, that's where I'm going to go. Mm. So got that, um, and that's where I've been ever since in QA. I've uh, climbed, I climbed my way up into the senior ranks at Jagex, and then I moved on to Oxford to Natural Motion. Um, oh, cool. For I was there for a while, and then I decided to step out of the games industry. I was like, no more. There are, there are wonderful things about it, and there are bad things about it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be um, around all the bad stuff anymore, so I stepped out. Um, and I worked as a software tester and junior programmer in the medical, in medical software at Oxford <laughs> University. And it was good. It was a very good job. It was fun. I learned a lot. I learned a lot of programming languages. My head was exploding. <laughs> and I realized that where I really want to be is in the games industry with people who are like me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it was very, very straight-laced and very serious, sensible people. Sure. And in academia, and that's not me. <laughs> and I was never made to feel unwelcome in any way, but something I found about the games industry is that my experience of it has been, it doesn't matter what you look like, your gender, your sexuality, your race, nobody cares if you've got green hair, shaved head, tattoos, piercings everywhere. I've never, I've, the only experience I've ever had is just being completely accepted for who I am. Okay. And it's like, that's what I want to get back into and just to be around my people. Great. So, but there was, a, there was a caveat. I was like, I'm not going back to a company that, that practices crunch or does all these nasty things. Yeah. I want to work for a small indie studio, top quality. I'm like, I'm never going to find this place. <laughs> 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 and then I saw um, 
fail better want a, a QA tester. And it was the last day of the... It had been up for months, apparently, this, this advert. It was 12 o'clock. Oh, no, 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 I'm lying. It was, it was half five on the last day of that thing. And I sent a message on Skype to my husband. I said, look at this. I actually didn't say that. I swore. I said some very naughty <laughs> words. Um, and he's like, you, you better get your ass home and get your CV done. I'm like, I'm coming, I'm coming. I said, five hours. And I think I sent it in with like 10 minutes to midnight. Oh, Next day they were like, yeah, we, here's a test. A week later, come for an interview. <laughs> And the rest is history. Brilliant. So, uh, so that's my story. <laughs> that is a dizzying array. That's a roller coaster of yeah. many things. Amazing. <laughs> and you always end up ended up have that sort of the games burg in the back of your head the whole time. Like oh, yeah. always thinking, I'd like to do that, and then yeah. came back. And even when you decided to move on for a bit, you thought, No, I need to come back yeah, to it in it some capacity, just with some of these things. Absolutely. Some of the, the less desirable elements taken out. I think so. I think as well, when, once you've got to a certain level, you can sort of be, you know, really picky and choosy. Hmm. Uh, it can be a hard industry to get into and you just try your hardest to do that. And yeah. so, you know, it's easy for me to sit back and say when re-entering the industry, I was like, no, I will pick and choose my companies. Hmm. Um, but you do have that perspective as you, you know, go further down the line. So, yeah. Hmm. Well, while we're on the thread of it. Let's slag off the industry. <laughs> <laughs> let's get <laughs> crack knuckles. Let's go. Stretch, <laughs> stretch. Okay. Let's let's start. Let's get, carry on with the negatives, and then we'll we'll have some positives afterwards. But um, what do we think? What are things that we uh, we're not keen on? That that frustrations or just things you want to work towards changing. Anybody in particular want to start? Or shall I? You, you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say is, is the thing about diversity and representation. Um, mm. It's getting better. It's still terrible. Mm. Like, um, I, I was very much a, a tomboyish uh, child and I was never bothered by not having any women that I could play as. I'm just like, yeah, I'm a dude, that's fine. Um, but I was kind of conditioned by the books at the time, always the heroes being male. And I just assumed yeah. that's kind of the default. Mm. Um, and I can't remember what the first game was where I could pick my character. It might have been a Bioware one. Yeah. Um, but I finally got to play as a woman and went, it does matter. Like, until I got to do that, yes. I thought, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I suddenly did and went, oh, this is nice. But then we look at the, the women you can pick. It's fairly easy to find one that represents me because they're basically going to be white. You're going to get a range of hair from sort of brown to red. Yeah. As long as they've got reddish, that'll do me. Um, I'm very easy to find, find in games now. Yeah. Um, but that's it. Oh, there, there are no <laughs> fat women. Like so, so it's easy to find me in games because I'm basically under average, I guess, in in weight. I'm I'm fairly normal. You look like an elf. <laughs> <laughs> a hench elf. I've been working out. I I went hench to the gym elf. this morning. I've been lifting and I did squats and I'm I'm very proud of myself. An elf who lifts. I I, I lift. So uh, yeah. But it's that. It's the whole is is. It's easy for me to find myself, but I can see all the people who are missing. Yes. Um, and until I played as myself, I didn't realize it matters, and now I know it really fucking does. Mm. Yeah, like, I really want more fat characters. Mm. My big thing is, make, is just reminding people that fat people exist. And it's yeah. so easy to write fat people into word-based games because you don't have to animate fat. <laughs> but you look at games like even in yeah. games like Saints Row where you have a slider and and you can slide that slider all the way up to really thick and juicy it's just like a very it's a 
inflated. It's, yeah, it's just stiff. like a stretched image, yeah, isn't it? It's, it's not like any kind of. And you're stiff and yeah. you don't move. And like, look yeah. at how fat hangs and how it animates and how people move. And just flipping. Give give the my blog's yeah. name is Jiggle Physics because I'm obsessed. <laughs> I'm obsessed with this representation that we just don't get, and it's like. Um, just it, it's, yeah. it's looking for myself again, mm. looking for myself in what games are and trying to see. I, I don't know if I can think of any examples. There's Ellie in um, Borderlands and she's not playable. And she is very <laughs> fat and fabulous and very sexual. Yeah. And, and she has desires and needs and she's amazing. Oh, howdy. I didn't see you there. Name's Ellie. My brother Scooter told me you was coming. Don't get many visitors around here, especially not one so cute. She's a mechanic in a big um, overalls, like coveralls. Um, but she like, I can't remember who it is who she fancies, but she just really openly is like, oh, I like the look of you. Like she's brilliant. <laughs> she, and she's not, she's fat, but she, that the, her purpose is not to be fat. She's yeah. not, she's, she's big, but she's not like a grotesque fat person. She's yeah. not eating all the time. She's yeah. not associated with food. She's a mechanic. So fat people divorced from the tropes of fatness being slovenly, gluttonous, mm. um, evil. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that is like, like content-wise, that's one of my big bugbears. Yeah, you always see them as, uh, and they're always antagonists, aren't they? Oh, look at Fat Princess. Like, she's, she's kind of a mm. joke. Yeah. Right? And, you yeah. know, fat people are everywhere and we have lives and careers <laughs> and we get things done, so. Mm. Well, that was the, that was the kind of the, the disappointment with um, May in Overwatch, wasn't it? When they sort of, at first, they were like, oh, hold on. And then they sort of went, oh, no, she's just wearing a lot of clothes. Yeah. <laughs> she's just well, wearing a big coat. Or oh, it's just kind of like it was, it was, they, they seemed, seemed almost scared. It's like, it's like that, but it's not it. really like that. Like, yeah. we're going to say this yeah. character is gay. And that's, she's gay, right? Mm. But only in a comic. What was it? Mm. Trace, Tracer? I do not play AAA games very much. Oh, yeah, um, they, they did this little... It was almost like a nod, yeah. In, she's in, super lesbian. Everybody who cares about being lesbian, she's a lesbian. Hooray! And all the people who care about that stuff went, hooray! And then the rest of the people were like, well, it's not appearing in my game, so it's cool. You can have mm. that. It's not affecting my gameplay experience. Like, shit or get off the pot, frankly. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> industry-wise, um, something that I think is perhaps common to everything that we do is the need for skills outside of programming and that the games are that these invisible skills olivia talked about how editing doesn't have any value until you've had it done quality analysis is so important these games don't get released mm. without these skills these games don't get sold without mm. skills like mine yeah. and just because they're invisible they're not valued in the same way um you people understand the value of a programmer with a very high level of skill and you are you are um, remunerated yeah. really really handsomely for being mm. a high level programmer but when it comes to something like marketing or even social media organizing advertising events influencer relations pr all these things mm. not really valued in mm. the same way but if people don't know about your game they can't buy it <laughs> Less is amazing. Um, Do it. This, this is the thing. Like when I was doing QA when I was eighteen, QA was kind of the joke group of the company. Like we were needed, but we were in a separate building. Yeah. Like 
IDOS was in Wimbledon, we were in Southfields, yeah. and we just played games all day. I mean, it was actually really hard work, and we kind of went mad because we had to work on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and so heard Chris Tarrant's vo voice every day, all day, oh. for weeks, and like the entire office just went insane. That has to be the worst one I've heard yet. I pretended I spoke fluent Italian because I'm posh, they believed me, um, just so I could hear someone else's voice. Um, it, it was as simple as that. I just I couldn't do it. Um, but it was kind of like the joke thing. And the only way people respected QA is a few people who broke out from QA to be producers. Mm. Um, and that was really bad. And then we didn't have official QA. It fell better. And we just kind of did support, did our own bugs. And everyone's a journalist mm. beyond their own specialist skill. And then Les turned up. And it's like this huge sigh of relief because you know that someone else who actually has skills in this area is looking out for it. Yeah. And it's amazing. Like... I can just leave things with her and know they'll be sorted and know mm. they'll be fixed. I'm like, this thing, and she goes, yeah, I've got it. I'm like, this thing, yeah, I've got it. I'm like, but this thing, yeah, I've got it. I'm like, oh my <laughs> God. It's like the whole burden of making sure this game isn't broken is just lifted off us. Mm -hmm. And and it makes the whole gameplay experience fun. And it also means I can concentrate on my job because if I'm playing the game to look at the readability or how things look. I don't mm. have to stress about this thing that's broken over there because it's someone else's problem yeah. and I know it will get fixed yeah. because... QA, at least in, in Les's role, doesn't just find the problem. They find the problem, they find how it arises, they reproduce it, give this information to the person who can fix it, they fix it, then test it and make sure it's fixed, and then if it's not, beat the person over the head with something until it is. <laughs> like, it's not just finding problems, it's mm. everything in the whole process to make sure that problem goes away. Yeah. And Les is really, really good at it. Briefly, and I love Bioware, so I'll, I'll start with that. But um, the most recent Dragon Age, um, there was a bug where some people couldn't hear any of the banter. That's what I play the games for, is the interaction between characters. And I, I wasn't the only one. It was a bunch of people and some of the reviewers. And they're like, well, this is really quiet for a Bioware game. And they're going, no, no, you're just missing all the conversations. And it took them months to track it down. And it was obviously something that was only driven out by players playing this thing and finding yeah. it with weird combinations. But... I mean, that's even with a QA team. Like yeah. these things can make or break a game, and yeah. and that's the kind of thing you need QA to find. It's like people aren't hearing any of the chat. Mm. This is a really quiet game. They're just strolling around, going, "Okay, I have a party." <laughs> they all hate each other because they're just silent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird little things like that. Making games is hard. Um, it, yep. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. I've worked on medical software where you know that that stuff has to be right. You know, that has to be bug free or people can die. Yeah. Um, can be overdosed on, on stuff. So, um, but it, it's, there's such complex systems and I love that. Um, mm. And I love working out, you know, why is this random weird bug happening over here? Oh, it's because it's connected to this legacy code way over there. It's like, that's, it's very strange and very awesome and, and I love it. And I really shouldn't talk about my own profession, but it, it is that is one of the things I hate about the industry is the, it's getting better, but the, the view of QA as traditionally um, just, just a foot in the door to go on to do other things. Mm. Um, and I've always, I've been very lucky in the places that I've worked um, where QA is valued. Um, and I've seen places where QA is not totally valued, but it's come a long way and changed. But I've heard horror stories from fellow QA people of like, like that with being in the a completely different building. Mm. Um, the way that some developers can talk to you like you're something they, you, you know, that's been scraped off their boot. Uh, so just as valuable as, as the rest of the team. Um, 
and yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with using it as a foot in the door to go on to do other things. Um, but some, I call myself like a career QA um, yeah. person. I, I love it. That is, I didn't realize that's what I wanted to do. Um, but once I got into it, I was like, this is amazing. Mm. Uh, and I get to touch all areas of the game, the audio, the art, the animation, um, the writing, the programming. Because um, quite a lot of companies, um, I mean, a lot of testers have uh, programming backgrounds and you get to do a little bit of everything. And I yes. love that. And it's kind of like, I've got it all. Yeah. <laughs> Why would I want to go and be a specialist over there? I'm just going to continue to do it all. Um, you get the you get the sort of the broadest view of the game as yeah. well because you're, you're you're going into each section of it and seeing how it works together and you yeah you, yeah. you sort of have the the best overview essentially yeah it's awesome and then you get to be this person or this team at the end of it that no literally knows everything about the game because you know when you've got your specialist your programmer he will um, look at various features um, but he won't be able to program everything that's mm. why you've got a, a wider team. Um, but the testers will literally know how everything fits together and how everything works. Yeah. Um, and I remember a time at Jagex when our CEO was wa walking around showing around some industry dude and he was like, this is our QA team. He says, you want to know anything about the game? These are the guys you go to mm, speak to. And I yeah. puffed up with pride. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, this is true. <laughs> That's great. Definitely. That's nice. Um, so I know not everybody can afford to have a QA team, but if you can get one, they're worth their weight in gold. So talking about QA and, and feedback and... I know with um, you making these video diaries, well, the, the streams, aren't they? Where you get everyone, like the players on board. Now, interviewed Ninja Theory in episode one of series three. Um, and they had that thing where they had the, um, on, the sort of ongoing developer diaries as they made it. Yeah. Getting everyone involved at the start, at the ground level sort of thing. So they found that very useful to um, both build an audience and get another perspective mm -hmm. as they were making the game. Are you finding you're getting sort of similar results from that? Has it been very useful? Anyway? Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh, yes. As a person that's sort of like on the front lines with our players, um, it's vital. Sometimes you, you just don't consider certain things and yeah. they will tell you straight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And yeah, we've had a lot of that with, with Skies, um, collecting feedback from everybody right from day one of early access, but we've, uh, we're redesigning Fallen London. Right. And we ran a couple of closed betas before we, we released it and then an mm -hmm. open beta. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really shocking, the kind of feedback that we were given from these testers, things that we'd not considered or just because you don't, we all play games differently. Mm. Um, and there were certain things in Fallen London that I realized that some of our players are proper min-maxers and, you know, they, yeah. they're all about the efficiency and I'm like, yeah. wow, this is not how I play it. So that's totally not a perspective I considered. Yes. Um, and now we've got that feedback. Yeah, we're going to change this and, and, you know, make it much better for, for everybody's needs. Yeah. Um, and I would, I would hate to make a game without that kind of feedback from players mm. and just make a finished product and go, product and go ta-da! <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's vital, I think. 
think it helps build the fan base as well and the, and the yes. kind of the, the loyalty. I was, I was going to go back to the, the previous point is I think with any creative thing and, and games are obviously very creative, I'm going to really badly mangle a Neil Gaiman quote, but it's when somebody tells you something's wrong, they're probably right. When they tell you how to fix it, they're probably wrong. Hmm. And I think that's the kind of thing with game development is you should really put things out there and hear what people say hmm. and then work on your own solution because... Yes people are not on the inside and don't know what you have mm. to work around or mm. indeed who else has given you feedback. Yeah. Um, so you don't want to leap straight to the solution of your most vocal players, but you do want to listen to them because mm. they're probably making a point they might not even realise they're making. Yes. And that brings me to accessibility, which is so important and a big part of why we talk to people all the time. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, as Les says, everybody has their own play experience that we are making a game and the game that we make is what we know and understand it to be but when someone else receives it they know and understand it to be something else and their ownership of it changes it so someone who only ever plays Sun of Sea at night at their desk with their cat in the room yeah. and you know when they got to a particular terrible thing that they saw they jumped and the cat screamed and that is their big understanding and memory and the the emotion that they have then when mm. we're not going to have that emotion playing yeah. the game ourselves so um you you start to think about uh you you will always be surprised by feedback it can we keep getting surprised by feedback for things like sunless sea even though it's been essentially finished mm. for years um, because people keep having new experiences with it and that emergence and, and that dialogue mm. is what makes our games such high quality. Um, the fact that we we play it on office desktops sitting around together or we watch one streamer play it and yeah. they play it one way. Yeah. Um, we we had a whole stuff a whole raft of stuff initially with Sunless Sea where the text really wasn't very legible at certain screen sizes, though we tested the heck out of it obviously. Mm. But then use cases really broke that open. So now we go into a new project with a whole raft of accessibility stuff that we learned from the last one, um, especially because we were so reliant on the rendering of text in Unity, which didn't used to be very well supported since mm. Sunless Sea. It has, it, since Sunless Sea launched, it's changed and it now is. Um, so we always have UI rescaling, text sizing rescaling, which we didn't have in, we didn't have it when we launched Sunless Sea. Like, mm. looking back, it's like, what? what? <laughs> yeah. But we, even in early access, nobody had really mentioned that to us. Um, so I guess to put a point on all of this, the day that you launch your game is the day that you find out what is really wrong with it. <laughs> the, the, the day that you think, oh, cool, tick, done, hooray, pop the party poppers. <laughs> when thousands of people hit your game at once, they will find something else. Yeah. It's just, that's, that just happens. It just, it works out that way. Um, so the, the kind of... Um, when you feel like the job is done, the job has just begun, mm. um, which, you know, we've had a community next to us for eight years. The people, there are more people playing for London now from the first year of play than there are from the second, third, fourth year. Right. Um, the golden cohort are still with us, a right. lot of them. Um, and people have traveled internationally and got married because of our games. And, um, you know, there are fallen London babies and oh, really? friendships and jobs. Like Olivia was part of the community, joined us. Adam, part of the community, came to us um, and is now the deputy CEO. Um, so, yeah, we, we're like basically, <laughs> we're pretty close to our community. <laughs> yeah, that's as close as you can get. About as close. Like, <laughs> I sit two feet away from Adam, yeah. Um, so we very much believe in it. And I, I know people go away and do it the other way, where they just labour on something completely by themselves and release it fully formed. 
Um, but I don't know how they deal with. I don't know how they would deal with the influx of feedback to something like that. That would probably break my mind. Do you think it helps taking this approach where you have um, you making the process more visible to the the community? Yeah. So when it comes out, you say, "Oh, this is a problem. That's a problem," and they don't go, "This is shit. This yeah. is what are you doing, jokers? You're just lazing around all day. What, what the hell?" You we thinking? have this ongoing dialogue with our best guys our closest guys and then and gals and friends beyond the binary and they do a wonderful job of educating everybody else mm. so even if there is like a piece of sort of not great news from us or um something happens in the game that they that people don't like somebody will go oh well i watched the development blog last week and blah yeah. i've been watching the streams and it's mm. really got better mm. um and they fell better are good guys and they always try and do things you yeah. know with the community in mind so you have to work really hard for that pedigree yes. and you have to always communicate and, and don't do the thing where you know the project is going wrong so you stop posting blogs <laughs> and then it, everything goes and then you have to post six months later oh, I'm so sorry for all the not being not saying anything for the last six months but here we go got a, oh. you have to keep yeah. people informed because mm. everyone um, knows as well when it goes quite yeah, a thing yeah and though. it's sad and then speculation opens up and, and this is the thing I'm talking about communications creating spaces and filling them with messages mm. if you create a space and then leave it empty mm. other people will fill it with messages mm. Mm. very true so wise <laughs> <laughs> I feel really wise about that one it's I like, like that. that one <laughs> chef's Nailed kiss it. Fucking messages. <laughs> 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 fucking messages. Uh, it's getting really warm in here. Oh I feel like God. high on talking. Oh, that's beautiful. When I spoke to Ninja Theory about this, Don said that um, the other thing is people are interested in learning the language of game dev as well, at least to a, to a point. So you, when you start using that, if they're familiar with it, a bit more familiar with it, so they can understand what's happening, and they're interested in knowing some of that stuff. And so if so, once you arm them with that knowledge, you can use it to yeah. explain unforeseen problems and that kind of thing, and, and show them that that's the norm. So if you open up enough to show that process, there's less kind of you know, because there's, there's so many, you know, you only have to go on if, if you're really bored like me and you, and you hate yourself. Go on Facebook comment sections under certain <laughs> things. <laughs> I know, no, you should. I know you shouldn't, but I always go, I'm just going to see because there'll be some, I don't know why. I want to see top terrible, grade bullshit like, in here. see yeah. terrible sentences. <laughs> and people oh. go, you know, uh, I used to do it when I was doing the um, photo documentary for us two games. Whenever they posted any photos from the social media thing, like photos of them playing a game at lunchtime. Mm. There'd be comments under it like, oh, we're going with it. I'm waiting for the game. Oh, this is what you're doing instead of making it, eh? And all this sort of stuff. And you're yeah. like, what, having lunch? <laughs> yeah. It's insane. So there's, there's still a lot of, I mean, also that's just social media and people are insane. It doesn't matter what the subject is. The, you know, they, yeah. they have some, they have some uh, um, difficult to understand viewpoints, which they may not even agree with them themselves. They're just mm. born and decide to spout some madness. On people the, just want to talk shit. Yeah, yeah. People, just, people just want there to talk shit. There is a culture of, of entitlement and yeah. a lack of understanding of how human beings need, you know, downtime and... Rest and rest. joy. Um, and it's stepping away <laughs> to look at something later is often yeah. more valuable than plugging away at it for 10 hours or whatever. Yes. Um, or just, uh, just kind of basic respect. Respect for other people. Yeah, basically disrespect <laughs> just on that as um i recently watched a video by someone who does a podcast called hurrying slowly 
okay. something like that. And okay. it's very much about how creativity needs space and that you never have the, the solving it thought when you're really straining to solve a problem. Mm. It's when you go for a walk, it's when you think about something else, it's when yep. you, it's, yep. you're in the pub and suddenly you go, holy shit, this is a solution. You never have yes. the thing that solves your problem while you're there mashing your face mm. against the keyboard. It, mm. it just doesn't happen. And that's why you need those spaces for your, the back of your mind to be going, well, what if it was something you're not thinking about? It's that kind of thing. But it's important to remember it's not just for the creative side, which is writing. It's also for the creative side, which is programming or yes. any aspect of the game. It's, I think there's still the whole weird woo hands art about some aspects of things, like art, woo hands art. And, <laughs> I like that. And, and writing. <laughs> but they're all jobs and they're all creative jobs. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of important to recognise because a coder can sit there just making code, but... Mm maybe send them to go and have a cup of coffee and come back to a problem rather than just keep grinding at it because hmm. it's also an art because there are different ways of solving these things. My parents hated games. I, I, I persuaded them because they didn't know anything about computers. I needed the most high-powered computer to write essays on. <laughs> so um, it, it, it was very much alt-tab, going back into a game. Ashron's Call is the one that's particularly where my thing was, sorry guys, my mum came in, or I had to stir the soup, or I had to go yeah. and have dinner. Can we go and collect my corpse? And that was kind of the thing people <laughs> knew me for. And it's like, sorry, I had to pretend I was writing an essay. But it's the thing is... is my parents were absolutely certain that computer games would ruin my academic career because mm. that's what they cared about. We didn't have a TV either, but that didn't bother me. Yet. Like I, I'd be stealth playing games. But <laughs> my mother was a little bit of a hypocrite because she would steal my Game Boy, take Tetris into the bathroom where I couldn't get my Game Boy back and play it for hours. <laughs> so. Busted. What was, everyone else, what was everyone else's parents' reaction to, to games and things like that or family in well, general? Well, my, my father was never really bothered. Uh, my mother was a gamer. Ah. She was the coolest mother <laughs> around. Uh, all my mates were jealous of my mum. So um, the very first game I remember uh, playing and being obsessed, we'd gone to visit our cousins, my cousins who were like in their 20s, and they bought a Mega Drive, mm. brand new, Sonic the Hedgehog, Ooh. and I was just like, oh, what is this? And I was obsessed with it, and so was my mum. And for months and months and months afterwards, I begged her, mum, can we have a Mega Drive? Can we have a Mega Drive? It's like, no, we can't afford something like that. Yeah. What were they, like 300 pounds or something, way, yeah. even way back then? Yeah. And it's like, just no way. And I don't know how long it was between seeing that and getting one. Um, but there came a Saturday morning where my mum said, right, we're off to Comet or, you know, whatever it was. I think it was Comet that macro, existed then. Macro, macro. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> me and your dad are going to buy a Mega Drive. And I went absolutely ballistic. And she went, it's not for you. It's not yours. It's mine and your dad's. And I'm like, oh, it don't matter, it don't matter, go and get it, go and get it. <laughs> and it really was. And, and yeah, I had, to, I had to fight with her to, to get on a bit of Sonic Excellent. and Echo and <laughs> all the amazing things. She was absolutely okay. amazing at games, um, my mum. She was unbelievable. And um, she's now in a care home. She's got dementia. Um, but one thing that really stayed with her throughout her decline was her ability to play games right and um, in the very very early days of a uh, disease we, we um well i continued to buy various games for her and i remember buying her a little uh, a ps2 
Right. With Shadow of the Colossus. And I'm like, you will love this, mum. You will get this. And I yeah. had to help her out a little bit more with the controls. But yeah, she loved that. Um, what are all sorts of things that I would try her out with. And then, then she started to regress a bit and couldn't do the more complex stuff. Uh, but Sonic was always there. And even hmm. when she, she wasn't able to handle Sonic, we'd like get Angry Birds or something on the iPad. And like, because that's so simple, you know, just yes. pull that back, mum, and pew, there it goes. Um, so yeah, she's, uh, my mum's a gamer <laughs> right until the end. That's awesome. <laughs> so my mum was, she, she, she was into games. She got it. But yeah. again, that whole, you know, it never occurred to her that somebody sits down and makes these things. So mm. it was never a, a, a career option. No, you must do something practical. Yeah. Um, and my dad would sometimes, you know, have a little dabble with us, but he was totally uninterested. <laughs> yeah, that's my folks. And, and if she knew what I were doing now, she'd, um, she'd go nuts. <laughs> she would be so proud. Bless her. As a quick aside, considering women don't play games, it was my mother, my dad, zero interest. <laughs> Your mum's cleared the thing. It's like, it's the women playing games. Um, <laughs> I'm a Mega Drive kid as well. But it was my dad and I who used to play together. And when I couldn't make Sonic jump without physically jumping myself, <laughs> remember those days, raising the control pad yes. over my head. And he'd be like, no, just come on, sit down. Come on, it's not how it works. He would play through a game on a Saturday morning for a couple of hours and yeah. I'd, I'd be there next to him watching it mm. and watching and um, consuming games as as someone who isn't playing has been my main experience of enjoying mm. games. Um, I'm not very manually dexterous. I find even using two sticks to be quite difficult still. The first two stick game I played was Bioshock and I spent most of my time in the corner spinning around in one place shoot, yeah. shooting my feet. <laughs> As much as I enjoyed the story, but my wife had to help me through that one. That's canon, um, isn't it? That's what. Yeah, that's, I mean, I was I was cosplaying. I was I was, I was embodying a splicer, um, but the um, I guess the 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 point of games for me has always been about the social, and mm. so now the, my favourite experiences are like sofa co-op and um, mm. sharing that with my wife. My wife, who is who is hardcore gamer for life like we, we really we want to cancel the word gamer because it sucks yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but she she is um the most adept and the most interested and she's the one who brings the games into the house mm -hmm. um, th but i have this this last week bought a game and been playing it every day which is super unusual for me which is west of loathing um which is absolutely oh, yeah. fantastic from our brothers asymmetric in america who also have a, a browser game that keeps them ticking so they oh. have kingdom of loathing we have fallen london our success with sunless sea inspired them to make west of loathing which has now been ported to the switch it's fantastic funniest game i've ever played um but that is like it's very rare for me to actually commit to a game like that mm. um and i used to make my babysitters play games so i could watch so i, I much prefer stream <laughs> streaming and let's plays and stuff to actually playing myself which is probably heresy but you know it's how it's how it is like my dad would play quack shot with donald duck <gasps> which is an absolute banger of a game and it, it would take him an hour and 45 minutes to play the whole thing but though you know there'll be bits coming up that i knew were really hard and would have to be that would be so tense i'd be sitting next to him on the floor just like bursting bursting with excitement for him to beat the maharaja's <laughs> palace or whatever and uh 
you know, and then you die and then he might lose progress and how many lives does he have left? Yeah. Oh, we're going to lose the whole game. It was such yeah. brilliance compared to, you know, watching him watch Formula One, which is his other favourite thing he used to do on a flipping yeah, Sunday. Exciting. Like the, the, the deaths of all the Sunday afternoons of my youth. Uh, but he still has, he still has a console. It is a very attractive paperweight shaped like a PS4 underneath his television. <laughs> when I, I put Uncharted on it for them, the most recent one, um, to to like show him what like modern platformy type story based games were and um, mum and I mum and dad won't mind me saying that they they were like looking at it game illiterate which is so strange to me mm. they could see what was happening on the screen but they were asking me all these questions that they couldn't perceive the information that I was getting so I was yeah. in a fight I was getting punched in the face from the top left and there were like red streaks coming yes. towards and I was receiving damage and they were both independently watched me play a level and were like, what's, what's that? What's all that? What's that? Yeah. And well, obviously that means I'm getting decked in the face. Yeah, like it's From that angle, yeah. Yeah, and, but it didn't occur to them. They couldn't, they couldn't pick up on the, the, the stuff. So they've kind of drifted away from it. But the idea of, of, of not understanding how to pick up that information is just is, is bonkers to me. I think that's I think that's a huge um, thing to tackle to get um, to add uh, accessibility in a different way, as in just getting anyone who wants to start playing games into games. Is yeah. there are so many little sort of language of game things that we're all so used so used to that we don't even notice. Them. We take them a lot for granted. Yeah. Yeah. That people go, what's that? What's that? And what are the classics like? Why can't I go through that door? It's just a texture, obviously. You yeah, you door. can't. There's no <laughs> what button. What are you talking about? And it's like, well, it's a door. Why can't I go through it? You know, th or or like, just simple oh, things like that. They're telling me I have to rush. They're telling me I have to rush. Well, is there a countdown timer on the screen? <laughs> yeah. Because if not, you should totally go left where it says you should yeah, go that's right. That's bullshit, so don't like, worry. Why, why are you, you turning around? There's probably a chest around there. What yeah. do you mean? <laughs> why would I look? Like, how do I know what to do? Why would I look? Yeah. It's, it's so weird the way that games even when we try to be inclusive, is always looking inward. Mm. Um, and it's the, the part of the problem that we have with the perception of the industry is that, you know, if a game is moderately difficult, or even if not, people tend not to complete them. Mm. So you wouldn't necessarily see that there are credits at the end. You don't know what the jobs are. Everybody knows, you know, oh, a gaffer, best boy, like, you know, for film. But nobody understands what the makeup of a gaming team is outside of the industry. So no. you don't understand what the jobs are. Ago, you never get this kind of visibility thing that we've sort of been talking about and striving towards. Just on the on the games being having a language of their own, um, what's quite interesting is if you look at games that I consider normal and normal puzzles, and get someone who's really keen about games to do them, and they'll be so stuck. If you look at any of the things like Grim Fandango, Monkey Island, things that I think are genuinely brilliant, and then if I start trying to design because I think brilliant, I'll do mm. something like that. And then you just watch people go, why on earth would you put a rubber chicken on a pulley? Yeah. On, like, and then there's the ones where like things that were jokes then, like the whole monkey wrench that didn't make sense yes. beyond the US because of the spanner <laughs> thing. And it's just like, we were conditioned into like prodding and trying all kinds yeah. of combinations that people go, well, that's just a really silly thing to do. Why mm. would you, like you'd never do that. And, and then, so we're designing, having this huge kind of, back history of games mm. that were amazing at the time but also incomprehensible it, yeah. it's that kind of thing and we're going but we learned how to comprehend them so that's clearly good and fun we had a great time it's like no if you go back and watch someone play them and you'll go they were brilliant but now they're inaccessible and that doesn't make them less of a game but means that we've kind of grown up as an industry and we've learned that like I, I'm very much in games that you don't need tutorials but then I realised that 
I know that you press these four buttons to walk around. No one needs to tell me that. It's the first yeah. thing I do. And if that doesn't yeah. work, I prod the arrow keys and get really grumpy if it's that rather than mm-hmm. the letters. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's, it's very much, there are certain things that you just kind of like, well, of course you know how to do that. It's like mm. breathing. <laughs> oh shit it doesn't make sense that you, right but it's, yeah. it's very difficult to balance designing for a gamer designing for a gamer who's always been a gamer and designing for someone who's really keen wants to give you their money but also wants to be able to play it, it's mm. a really hard balance it's, it's I wonder if it comes from the fact that um, you just didn't have the same proliferation of games back then as well and also if you're children when you're playing it, that that was you've got your game. That's your game, so you can either play it or stop playing it or try and work out yeah. how it works because there's nothing else to play. You know, so so sort of get get stuck in. But then I think if people who grew up playing games are then making them, as you say, we have that language built in from so many years of of doing that. So um, I guess that's why it's also important to bring people who are usually outside of the industry in to make their things and, and to add their input to eliminate some of those problems as well if you want if we want to sort of make games available to a broader audience. You need people who are willing to ask really stupid questions like go, okay, I feel like I am somehow failing for asking this question, but here mm. is this. And then you just suddenly have this jaw drop moment of going, oh my God, that's obvious I should have asked it. Yeah. But it, it's, you need someone from outside going, why? Mm, yeah. But you need that voice. Definitely. Sun of Skies is still in early access, right? You're still... So what are your hopes for that game when it's done? When, when are you going to be like, I think, we, I think this is done now. I want people to cry. <laughs> I think what's quite exciting for me is, like, I can't do art. I always admire art. Like, art is magic. I don't mm. understand it, but they mm-hmm. produce these amazing things. And, like... Joining when Sun the Sea was starting production mm. and thinking this was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and then seeing some of the stuff they produced for Skies. Like, I have no qualms. People are going to be blown away by how beautiful it is. And I can mm-hmm. say that because I've got nothing to do with how it looks. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when each team thinks that about everyone else's work, mm. then we're probably there. Um, but we'll have to tell each other that. We'll go, your bit, your bit's really good. No, no, your bit's good. No, that, that's going to have to be. <laughs> For me, it'll be when every bug is nuked. <laughs> every last one. <laughs> or all the really trivial stuff is like just so hidden. Uh, somebody said the other day, oh, it's really, really polished for an early access game. And oh, it's bug free. And I'm like, you're not looking hard enough. It's like, it's an early access game. Of course, it's got bugs. Um, we'll get them all. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the, for me, games are always about the emotional experience and particularly with, particularly with our games. So those kind of reviews that we still get on Sunless Sea, that, that, the feelings that come out, oh my God, it made me feel this, and then I was terrified, and then I was elated for, you know, because mm. of all these random things. And it's like, it's that that yeah. I look forward to. Um, and when those kind of emotional experiences start coming through from the players, that's when I know we'll have got it. And, you know, gameplay-wise, it'll never be everybody's perfect thing some people will love the combat there'll be some people who don't like it and all the mechanics of it there's always going to be those oh, it could be better or it could be more this but it's uh, it's the writing and the the emotion that's going to come from it that's when i know we'll, we're done yes <laughs> she agrees 